From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz Group headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, companies hitch a ride with on-demand carpooling, what sustainability execs think about the circular economy, and a gusher of stories from World Water Day. We're paddling hard this week on 350. It's March 25th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Thanks for joining us. I'm here as I am every week with Green Biz Senior Editor Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Joel. How's it going? You know, it's going well. It's been a fun week. Yeah, so you were on the road, right? Yeah, uh, this is. Uh, I've been actually haven't gone anywhere for like a month, and so I'm I'm starting to itch a little bit and and needed to scratch it. I was gave a speech this week at the Intermountain Sustainability Summit at Weber State University. Where in is that? Ogden, Utah. Ah, very nice. You don't know where Weber State is? I know. <laughs> now you do. Silly me. Uh, great group of people there, and uh, really had 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 a fun time and. Uh, uh, going to be a little more next week, and then the hits just keep coming. The spring gets busy. But how about you? Uh, Apple kept me busy early this week. We're going to get into it in a second. They had this crazy robot. They announced it, their usual sort of iDevice showcase earlier this week. Uh, then lots of other stories related to transportation, and then water, 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 yeah, which yeah. we'll also get into. <laughs> well, nothing like a crazy robot to mess up your week, so let's get right into the Week in Review. So uh, Apple had a product announcement, and in the middle of that, they Lisa Jackson got up on stage and made some uh, remarks that I don't think anybody saw coming. Yeah, so it was a big deal, obviously, when Lisa Jackson, former EPA administrator, signed on at Apple uh, a couple years ago now. Um, and she has mostly been in the news for her work around renewable energy. And this new announcement sort of came out of left field a little bit, like you said, in between the announcements about a smaller iPhone and a new iPad. And this was really focusing on sort of reuse and end of life for their products. So the the robot that they actually showed the flashy video of is named Lee which is a very wholesome name um, and it's basically capable of deconstructing used iPhones and then removing the component parts for reuse or recycling so that could be like a precious metal such as silver that would be in the phone's motherboard uh, Jackson gave the example of stripping that and then repurposing it for solar panels yeah I guess Liam I'm not sure where that came from do you know I think it's an acronym some robotics technology way beyond they my... just didn't want to pick a name that was already taken yeah um <laughs> But, Apparently. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, this is part of something that Apple has, I know, has been interested in, and as almost all electronics companies have been, which is something we've been talking about for a while, the circular economy. And I think this is just the first step in what's going to be uh, an ongoing a series of announcements um, and developments, not just by Apple, but by other consumer electronics companies dealing with this, you know, what had been e-waste and how do we deal with this world where we're, we're constantly, you know, trading in things for other things and what happens to those old things and, and how do we capture the incredible value that's in them? I mean, they're pound for pound, there's far more uh, metals and minerals of, of mineable than there is in, in, in rock that you'd pull out of the ground. 
and obviously with a lot less, well, somewhat less environmental damage. And so that's, uh, I think, you know, the first, like I said, the first major step uh, to, to do this beyond the traditional e-waste, responsibly capture it and, and do something with it. Apple is now uh, in its own proprietary way uh, taking some responsibility for its products. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, I haven't heard back from them yet on sort of where they plan to deploy this type of robotics, what sort of scale they might look to achieve with it. Um, but really, one of the more interesting things for me was to see this video. It's about a minute and a half long. We'll link to it in the write-up of the show. It looks like your normal sort of stylish, flashy Apple commercial, but it has these also very strong environmental overtones, talking about the need to conserve resources and all that. So I think without bashing you over the head with sustainability jargon it sort of gets at these concepts like the circular economy and zero waste that are really sort of more aspirational uh what was interesting though is when i talked to some of the folks that are really big into sort of the whole e-waste issue and uh overconsumption folks like the repair association and a group called i fix it um they said yeah this is an interesting model but uh really the issue here is that uh the iphone is and specifically iPhones that Apple is breaking down as opposed to like third parties or consumers looking to repair things is still a relative drop in the bucket. Uh, So the thing one guy said to me was, I would love to see a robot take apart the iPad they introduced today. Uh, The big challenge is the diversity of models that are out there. So you kind of have to look holistically at this issue. Yeah, I know. And it sort of irks me a little bit. I mean, uh, I don't want to defend Apple, but I do defend companies that make bold moves that are um, almost by definition imperfect because they're sort of first mover and everybody jumps on them for not for doing a bold move but for doing something that's imperfect uh it's that old you know thing that i like to say that no green deed goes unpunished (laughs) i was struck by a story in uh, from our our good good friends at grist which i love grist uh but they sort of piled on katie herzog wrote a piece this week um you know quoting you know stealing from uh at least Jackson's quote about how you can feel really good about buying Apple products. And Chris says, don't believe them. And, and sort of rags on them, not, you know, while citing some of the fact, some of the things that other developments this week from Apple that announced that 93% of their operations worldwide are powered by renewable energy. Uh, and in 23 countries, including the U.S. and China, it's 100%. And 99% of Apple's packaging is recycled. And they're funding the preservation of a million acres of forest in China and 35,000 acres in the eastern United States. But, you know, this iPhone thing is imperfect. And yes, Apple has had long had this obsession with controlling everything about its equipment. You can't open it up and replace the battery. Uh, You can have them do it, uh, but they don't want anyone else inside the phone. And so now they've created a technology to take it apart. Uh, that nobody else can do. And so the real question, and this is where we'll have to hold Apple's feet to the fire, is can they scale this? Can they get enough of Liam's out there uh, and in taking on enough of these uh, uh, dematerialization or, or, or disassembly of, of equipment and, and putting them profitably back into the, into the materials uh, stream that this is actually making a dent in the number of of iPhones that are going into uh, into landfills and other junking uh, junked places, um, or whether this is just for show, and then then we'll know whether you know Katie Herzog and Gris uh, criticism is is on on target. 
And while we're on the topic of looking towards the future, we had another great piece this week from Laura Storm, who is the CEO of the think tank and consultancy Sustainia over in Copenhagen. And she actually was named a young global leader for the world by the World Economic Forum. And she wrote a piece for us on four traits that define the next generation of climate leaders. And I liked it because it went on... It went beyond some of sort of the stereotypical like millennials care about stuff category. Um, And she was talking more about like bottom up leadership and then sort of this idea of committing to bolder action as opposed to goals that, you know, there's an easy way to meet them. Um, So sort of an interesting way to lay out some broader themes that we've been talking about around COP and other climate action. Yeah. And to your point that what's nice about the uh, four traits is that they're not limited to you know, people born in the 80s, uh, that this is something that Gen X's and even us old boomers can certainly uh, incorporate and think about around empathy and bottom-up leadership, uh, committing to bold action regardless of who gets credit, and uh, disrupting dysfunctional systems, of which there are many. Um, and it's just a nice framing of of what leaders of at, at any age need to be doing, but certainly the next generation, which is to be thinking and doing bigger uh, and taking on uh, bold things and not uh, not worrying so much about the status quo and how to disrupt it and 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 again looking at dysfunctional systems and and asking questions well how do we not just make it less dysfunctional or more functional but how do we blow up it blow it up and come up with a whole new system yeah that systems part of it is interesting to me because sort of the concept of systems thinking has been around for decades but you're starting to see it picked up a little more in the mainstream um, both in sort of the press but also uh, like the tech industry is now big on systems and challenging dysfunctional systems uh, what do you think like why is that gaining traction well it's a good word and it does imply that you're thinking beyond components. Uh, that you're thinking at a bigger level. It is, I have to say, overused, and I'm probably guilty of this as well, of you know, taking a systems view, which means just taking, in some cases, uh, taking a broader, more holistic view, although it probably short of the entire system. So uh, there is you know, systems science, and uh, there are some some. Uh, there, there is some rigor and science around what it means to, when you talk about a system. Uh, so it's a, it's a bit of a buzzword for now, but it does, you know, directionally correct, as, as our colleague Eric Furrow likes to say, um, <laughs> that it's, it's indicating that people really, you know, understand that things, indiv- you can change things individually, but you really need to change the system in which they operate. Mm-hmm. And one interesting example is sort of a real world incubator for sort of next generation sustainable systems are island atmospheres. Uh, we ran a piece from our friends over at the Rocky Mountain Institute this week that looked at how microgrids are powering island industry. So that can range from applying renewable energy to mining operations um, to just sort of uh, ensuring reliable electricity for other types of business operations. Yeah, and this is a this is a system. It's it's a it, it's either a subsystem depending on if it's tied to the grid or it could be the entire energy system uh, for a given building, neighborhood, district, or or an entire island. And this is uh, you know, microgrids are something that we've been. Uh, I think we we talked about this year in the State of Green Business Report as one of the trends that we'd be seeing in the next year or two. And and uh, we've seen just a tremendous amount uh, of energy 
uh, pardon the expression, around microgrids lately in terms of thinking about how to put the pieces together. And of course, this is something that we've been intimately involved with for the past uh, three years at our Verge conferences. We actually power the entire conference in, in a big hotel or, or this year actually in a convention center. Uh, everything that gets plugged in or turned on by a renewably powered microgrid that we build on site in one day. Yeah, what is it? Walnut shells? Or well, uh, in the, the gasifier. Yeah, we have a we use a number of different technologies: uh, solar, wind. Uh, but the, a good chunk of the, the bulk, I think, of the energy, at least the last few years, has come from a gasifier built by a, a terrific firm in uh, not far from here in Berkeley, California, called All Power Labs. It's where there uh, you can use any woody pulp to gasify, turn into gas that that powers a um, uh, a four cylinder automobile engine that's basically attached to an extension cord. Uh, in this case, uh, we use uh, <clears throat> walnut shells. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's actually a cool video. There's a video that we made about building walnut shells, uh, building the microgrid. <laughs> I'm sorry, we don't build walnut shells. Uh, and then there's a, another video that we can link to that All Power Labs did. Uh, about a couple of years ago at our conference saying, can a conference be powered entirely by walnut shells? And, <laughs> and then they sort of show how it's done. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but, but the point is, is that we have we were showing uh, not only how to build a microgrid, but the but modeling the fact that over the last three or four years that we've been doing this, it's gotten easier and easier because the first year, nothing interconnected. And, and we brought in all the companies, even, you know, the big big honking companies that were working with us and they said, oh, this our thing doesn't talk to their thing. That's gotten a lot better. And so uh, now it's to, to the point where islands, which are, you know, traditionally uh, don't have power plants, they use diesel fuels, which they import usually by boat or At barge. high prices. Very high prices. And then burning diesel fuel to power electricity, to electric generators is uh, pretty polluting. Now we're starting to be able to build these microgrids that can power, uh, operate off of any number of different fuels, depending on what's indigenous. Mm-hmm. And this is not theoretical. We'll actually be going to Hawaii uh, at the end of June to look at some of this. They're the first state to make this uh, 100% renewable energy commitment. Uh, they want to be powering their electricity with 100% renewables by 2040. That is a legislative mandate. That's not just like a regular... You're 2045, but 2045. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, I want them to be more. Yeah, I know. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, there are some. You know, and there are some. Uh, one of our one of our good friends and advisors said that uh, he thinks they can do it by 2025 or 2030. In other words, that there's you can actually do this maybe by your goal, Lauren, yeah. of 2040. <laughs> Setting new goals. Yeah, <laughs> it's good to be it's good to be ambitious. Uh, but yeah, so we're we're going to be talking a lot about that at Verge Hawaii on June 21st through 23rd. And uh, and actually building a microgrid on site in in Waikiki Beach, where the conference will be uh, plugged into the Hilton Hotel uh, and Convention Center, where we'll be having this, uh, as well as into the local grid, so the power can flow in all the different directions, uh, and really modeling what a microgrid wants to be. So yeah, the, this is uh, RMI is, is talking about uh, who's doing this. That military is, and we'll have a, a number of at least three branches of the military wow. uh, on site. Uh, uh, at uh, present and accounted for at uh, Verge Hawaii, uh, talking about how they're using microgrids, among other technologies. And uh, we'll be talking about this a lot more.
So Lauren, you wrote a piece this week about a topic that's near and dear to almost everybody with a job, which is commuting, and uh, looked at how we can apply the, what we've all learned with about Uber and Lyft and ride sharing uh, uh, in the workplace. Uh, tell us what you found out. Yeah, so I obviously cover car sharing, ride sharing, all of these things where you're using transportation as a service instead of driving yourself around in your car, um, and specifically at how that might be applied to commuting, which often is covering a longer distance than you would in a short, cheap uh, Uber ride in a city. So one company that is looking at sort of tailoring their offerings to these longer range commutes is a company called Ride out of the Philadelphia area. Uh, their CEO, Ann Fandozi, who is a veteran of Ford and uh, Chrysler, actually. So she's from the auto industry. Uh, she was at our Green Biz 16 event a couple of months ago now, or just last month. And she talked about how they're really looking at the economics of ride sharing and like how you break that down for people that it's easier to break down if people are going to a common destination so for them the idea is to they say they go to work within the four walls of a company meaning they'll go to a big employer they don't disclose the employers that they work with unfortunately but um, they'll go to a company and say hey we have this carpooling tool that your employees can use uh, it's free for the company to use, and uh, Ride takes a transaction fee off of the actual um, fee that's paid to the driver. They basically divvy up the cost that everyone would be paying to commute individually, uh, slice and dice that, and you can see how the math works, and then they automatically transfer the payments. Um, so that's how the business model works, but what they want from a company are things like internal marketing, so telling, encouraging their employees to use it, and they can brand it to look like your company's own internal communications, and then preferred parking, since some of these campuses have crazy internal shuttles, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, interesting backstory on this, that uh, Ride has a, a rock star investor, literally, uh, Bono. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't realize it's that. one of the investors behind it. And I, as far as I understand, it came out of uh, how do we get people to and from rock concerts, mm. uh, which is you know not a job, but it's a location that thousands and thousands of people are going to on any uh, given day or evening. And uh, so this was specifically, or at least that was part of the motivation. Um, and um, it just interesting where ideas come from yeah i actually asked Anne about sort of the genesis of the company because ride actually came out of a company called v ride that's been around since the oil embargo of the 1970s which was much more focused on this sort of offline carpooling idea so she told me about how she has looked to evolve the company into a technology firm and part of that was hiring the former cto of uber when you came in then, what was sort of like the tech infrastructure? Like how were people organizing their rides and sort of knowing who was available to drive them? We were one step away from an abacus. So literally, manually, almost like an atlas and people and clipboards is where we were three and a half years ago. Wow. Um, right. Quite a challenge. It's incredible. And by the way, and a testament to these people that genuinely want to ride share, they would go through all of this trouble because they know how great it is. You know what? It's interesting. I knew that we were going to change the landscape using technology. That was the whole reason I was attracted to it is, you know, this is the time and place uh, uniquely in history that allows this to happen. And I knew I needed a chief of technology. 
And so um, I contacted some of the recruiters that I really trusted on both coasts and asking for, hey, this, you know, I need somebody very special that would be super energized by the space, proven track record on the technology front, um, and would create a ground up. And, uh, and the example I kept using for them is I wanted to be like Uber. I wanted to be like Uber. And Uber was, uh, this is, you know, three years ago when, or two and a half years ago when I started this. So Uber was nowhere near the, you know, the giant that it is now. It was already, you know, well, well on its way. So a lot of them said, listen, Ian, the number of Ubers that are out there, that's like a one. <laughs> we can promise you, but we don't know. So I actually ended up researching um, the history of Uber and uh, found out that it was actually started by the, these three guys. Uh, two of them were college friends, and Travis actually got added a little bit later into the equation. Um, and uh, now Travis is running it, but one of the original three was actually in New York, Oscar. Um, and so I went about, you know, trying to meet Oscar and have a coffee with him and tell him this idea about commuting um, and see what he thought. And honestly, he could not look away. So our 45-minute coffee turned into two and a half hours, uh, turned into him coming back to me two days later saying, wow, Ann, I, I want to do this. This is, this is incredible. Very complicated. Very, very complicated, but look at the impact it could have on the world. So where is this available? Is it uh, coming soon to a city near us? <laughs> I think that's the idea. It's funny because I know people in the Bay Area might be into this idea right now, given that our train system is, is a little crazed at the moment. Same with D.C. I think their metro was down. And that's what Anne actually said. Like when they look at which market makes sense for them to tackle next, uh, both in terms of geography and having a base of large employers, they do look very closely at what sort of public transportation options Options are already there uh, in a place like New York where you've got these elaborate networks of trains that people already use heavily. Maybe that's not the best place to, to be uh, focusing on commuting by car, but Atlanta is their most recent yep. market. Uh, I think Kansas City, some of the places in the Midwest. But I'll be curious to see if they do tackle some of these really harried markets like California. So we start with the geography. So candidly, if there is a geography where they have a great public transit solution, that wouldn't be top of mind for us. So as an example, we right now are in the midst of a very heavy-duty activation in Atlanta. Why Atlanta? If you've been to Atlanta, uh, Atlanta is a congested mess. Um, there's a couple of main arteries that go in and out of the city. That's it. The nice thing is there are HOV lanes, which makes you know carpooling really advantageous right from the word go. Uh, there are very large employers in Atlanta. Uh, they have lots and lots of people going to work there. So it made it a very attractive place uh, for us to go. So we literally um, approached, at, at the end of the day, you know, smartphones have proliferated. People's use of technology uh, you know, has really proliferated. If we were maybe five years ago, then I would say, uh-oh, I need, you know, 20-somethings because are they really going to use my app? Well, you know, my mom uses apps more about the area and I mean lucky or unlucky you know the problem of congestion both for air and roadways is only getting worse everywhere you know Atlanta is a prime example because it's an entire city that has this kind of problem with very large employers uh, lots of cities have similar problems around the U.S. and around the globe but even you know tier two tier three tier four cities are starting to 
you know, have the exact same thing where they just weren't developed for uh, the infrastructure wasn't developed for the level of, um, you know, population and it can't keep up. I love it. Uh, Uber for commuters. Can't wait for it to happen. Right on. So in addition to all these stories we've been churning out this week, we actually had a new piece of research on the docket. Joining me now to discuss that is John Davies, who is Green Biz's vice president and senior analyst. How's it going, John? It's going great, Lauren. Nice to be here. Yeah, so we the, the topic at hand is the circular economy. Obviously, big, buzzy topic in a lot of the reporting we're doing and at our events. Uh, why did this seem like a good topic to tackle in sort of the research arena right now? Well, I think a, a couple of things. We, you know, at Green Biz 16, we had Ellen MacArthur on stage with a great interview that Joel did with her, and we really featured a whole track on circular economy. But we hadn't seen a lot of quantitative research around the topic. So uh, UPS teamed with us to go out and really figure out what what people are thinking about when they talk about the circular economy. Mm-hmm. And how what, what sort of methodology are you looking at here? I understand it was sort of surveying a large number of companies. Right. We went out to our uh, Green Biz Intelligence Panel, which is... 5,000 plus uh, people who have raised their hand and said, we're willing to take uh, green biz surveys. And we got 423 respondents from our survey who fed into the data um, that we compiled into this report that just got released. So what were some of the key takeaways for you? Anything particularly surprising or useful for people figuring out how to get into this space? Well, I I think the really key thing that came out of our event and comes out of this research is we're still in the early days or frontier days of of the circular economy. Um, I mean, it it sort of reminds me of the early days of sustainability, maybe 10 years ago when when companies would take sort of some employee volunteerism, some public reporting of of greenhouse gas emissions or waste reduction, some lighting retrofits, kind of bundle it all together and say, hey, we've got a sustainability program. And, you know, we saw that a lot 10 years ago. Nowadays, you know, um, leaders in sustainability have a strategy. They're laser focused on where they can make the biggest impacts. I think we look at circular economy and sort of in that nascent stage where, you know, companies are saying, oh, yeah, we're doing circular economy, but, you know, they're, they're recycling, they're designing a product to be recycled, or they're, they're recycling some components, but, you know, they haven't necessarily taken a holistic view and, and really changed the economic strategy as well as the, you know, recycling or circular strategy. Yeah, exactly. That sort of came up as a as an area of discussion in a session I led at GreenBiz 16 on the topic of the circular economy. And that is sort of how is this whole area different from sort of the traditional three R's you hear about reuse, recycling. Um, Are there, is there sort of like a definition emerging or are there specific examples of companies sort of going beyond that that you found so far? Um, You know, there's definitely uh, the, the, 
quickest definition, I think, is, is one Joel's been using of keeping the molecules in play. And I think that fits right as a, as a good definition. Um, I think examples, we asked we ask, um, the panelists to name companies who are leading in this. And, you know, I think number one was uh, Patagonia. And number two was probably Interface. I'm, I'm looking now for it. And, and I think three or four was waste management. And, you know, with Patagonia, it makes sense that people would say this is one of the leaders in it because of their sort of drive to have people repair garments instead of just toss them into landfill. Um, their willingness to take back anything and either fix it or give you a new one. So I think they're sort of a thought leader in it. But um, there are a lot of other things going on that we had highlighted at our event, that it's not just about recycling, but it's about new materials and designing products in such a way that they can be taken apart or, or added to in their future lives. Mm -hmm. And is there sort of a consensus yet that you're seeing emerge in terms of the business case for investing in some of these strategies across industries? Well, you know, I think that's one of the things that came out of our research that, you know, one of the biggest barriers to this, you know, circular economy taking off is that there's just an insufficient business case. So we had 38% of our respondents said that there was an insufficient business case, and that's the biggest barrier. And another key barrier is the logistics cost to reclaim used goods. But I think both of these areas are also the biggest opportunities. If you can find the business case, then you know, you're able to jump out ahead of competitors. Yeah, I'm curious uh, on the logistics front. You mentioned uh, logistics came up something like 90% of the time in some of these responses. Yeah, it's a, it's a really critical factor, and I think it's really important for people to consider. Um, and, and I think we might even get a new buzz phrase out of this. You know, during the whole dot-com rise, Everyone talked about last mile logistics and how hard it was. You know, it's easy to ship things across the country, but then you've got to deliver it to somebody's home. And I think what we're going to see with the circular economy is sort of a focus on first mile logistics. How do I get things back into the mainstream to get it transported so that it can be remade, reused or, you know, recycled? Um, in my reporting on this, efficiency comes up a lot. Obviously, there could be marketing benefits if you're associating yourself with the likes of a Patagonia, sort of innovative design. Were there other sort of perks to the circular economy that you've seen? Well, I think one of the things that um, we did, I don't know if I'd call this perk, but we talked about perks of what would get people engaged in the circular economy. And we broke it down between what would ensure consumers to uh, be involved in this and what would involve, you know, sort of B2B or, or business industrial products be um, part of the circular economy. And for consumers, it's all about, um, you know, getting a rebate back in the form of cash or, or convenience of returning to a brick and mortar location. Um, whereas for industrial products, it was much more about will the producer or distributor come and reclaim the product from me? Is there a turnkey packaging and pickup service that allows it um, 
you know, to go back to the producer and will the manufacturer refurbish product in return for continued reuse? So definite uh, differences between how consumers could be engaged in circular economy and how uh, business businesses could be engaged in it. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, lots to watch in this space, and we'll be sure to link to the report in our show notes. John Davies, GreenBiz Vice President and Senior Analyst, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Lauren. Always happy to be here. in case you've been living under a rock this week, uh, it was World Water Day and there was a whole flood of corporate commitments and sort of big high profile events at the White House and other places. And our trusty water correspondent and senior writer Barbara Grady was covering all of it and she's joining us now. How's it going, Barbara? Good. How are you, Lauren? Good, good. So give us the lay of the land here. Uh, what were companies doing around World Water Day this year? Well, the White House invited a whole lot of people to a water summit and talked about the problems both in the U.S. and globally. But in the U.S., the water infrastructure is aging and pretty bad shape, as we all learned through the Flint, Michigan situation where kids were being poisoned with lead because of their drinking water. And also just the need for a better planning around drought resistance and um, possibilities of reusing water and recycling water because we are running out. So a lot of people attended and they announced initiatives that they were about to embark on. What companies specifically were there and what sorts of things? were? Are we talking about investments or new technology solutions? What are some of the ways the private sector sort of touches this whole issue of water scarcity and water infrastructure? Yeah, well, several big companies came out with um, plans to put more research and development into water reuse technologies and water management and kind of using Internet of Things technology to help pinpoint problems in the infrastructure. I spoke with GE's um, John Friedman about their program, and they're doing some really cool stuff around using um, the process of wastewater treatment to actually get some energy. So therefore breaking the water energy nexus where a whole lot of the nation's electricity is used in cleaning its water, their idea is to um, kind of pull the organic waste out of the wastewater, burn it, turn it into methane, and then, um, or rather, yeah, and then the methane that results would be burned to produce energy. Mm -hmm. I'm so simplifying those, their process, but yeah, it's something those, along those lines. Uh-huh, that's and, interesting, touching the whole waste to energy space. I also right. saw a big number floating around. $500 million was the, the number they put out? Yeah, that's what they are investing in R&D on water reuse and water recycling technologies over the next 10 years. Partnering for some of that, or maybe in addition to that, with 
American Water, which is um, very large, the largest U.S. water utility holding company, it's investor-owned holding company, has uh, water utilities in like 47 states. And they're going to explore the use of Internet of Things technologies to upgrade water infrastructures in all these different, mm -hmm. you know, all these water districts. Yeah, and that's what like, you started to allude at the beginning to a lot of this feeds back into infrastructure like we saw with yeah. all the terrible things that are going on in Flint yeah. right now. And our columnist, Will Sarney, his column is called Liquid Assets. He wrote about this uh, in his column that we'll link to in the story notes. But um, sort of how we know that there's the potential for technology and infrastructure upgrades, but the issue has been that there's no money to do these yeah. things. So the interesting economics of water is, sure, you want water to be available and accessible to everybody. So it's basically priced pretty cheaply including, though, to industries that use water to cool their equipment in manufacturing and including to farmers. So even though industry and, and big ag might have enough money to pay something a little bit more for water, it's all pretty much priced across the U.S. and the world too cheaply to allow for water utilities to recoup enough to upgrade their infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So one interesting thing I learned in this process is there's something like 56,000 water districts and water utilities in Jeez. the U.S., and most of them are independent. So, for instance, even though American Water is the largest company, it only, it, you know, it owns a small fraction, you know, mm -hmm. 10% or something. So it's um, fragmented. So and it's sort of, really fragmented. Yeah. Uh, some of them in rural areas are operating on kind of shoestrings. So they really don't have the money and kind of great structure to gather enough money to upgrade systems. One of the things that happened at the White House summit is that a bunch of um, investors types came forward and committed to the White House that they would put a collective $4 billion into helping to upgrade the U.S. water infrastructure system, basically by making financing more available. And the government is providing a sort of framework to allow that to happen more easily. And a group of NGOs led by kind of Ceres and CDP and a couple others decided to come up with this um, structure to make water bonds something that could be standardized so that investors would know what they're getting into. So they set up what's called the Water Climate Board Standards mm -hmm. to help, also to help financing of infrastructure upgrade. Mm -hmm. And it also sounded like there was some good talk at the White House event of sort of like taking the 10,000 foot view of like what what is the sort of the state of play right now with water? What are the key issues? And I understand you tuned into a live stream of that. Yeah. Yeah. And we heard them talking about the dire situation, but also the promise. Um, John Hoagland from the Office of Science and Technology talked about the fact that the world's fresh water supply does not meet demand. Demand exceeds supply at this moment. But he and others at the meeting were basically saying we can overcome this because technology provides a way for us to get more fresh water, both through reuse technologies and through better management and through not wasting as much as we do. 
So there, it was kind of hopeful. Mm-hmm. So as as much as sort of the the rush to water tech is intriguing, I think, and will certainly be something to watch. Um, I, I think it is important to also remember that. Uh, like a lot of issues we face with carbon and climate, uh, geoengineering and sort of like techno techno optimism can only get us so far at this point, especially when you've got like uh, early stage technology and lacking funding. And Barbara, you wrote earlier this week about some of the literally underlying issues here, which are around water scarcity, which the World Economic Forum now says is one of, if not the top risks facing the global economy um, and and sort of this whole issue of of groundwater and scarcity. Well, right here in California, where GreenBiz is based, we've had this awful drought and it has really affected agriculture here and agricultural communities because not only is there not enough rain and not enough water, but they have, uh, farmers have turned to groundwater to get supplies, as have actually homeowners. The result is that groundwater is depleting to really, really dangerous levels. And And the ground is sinking. The ground is sinking, what they call subsidence, because it's just there's not water holding it up. So um, there's a bunch of efforts stepping forward. The state has not regulated groundwater in all these uh, centuries that we've been a big ag state, but they finally passed a law in 2014 to begin to do that, but it's a very slow process and the requirements will not be, um, you know, something that people have to adhere to until 2040. Mm -hmm. Is it clear um, outside of California, like even internationally, is groundwater? Actually, in the United States, California is one of very few that do not regulate groundwater. Mm -hmm. Most states do. Uh But anyhow, it seems that farmers and ag scientists and so on are not going to kind of wait around for better days or for 2040 to come. And there's a really interesting experiment happening in the Central Valley, especially the driest, hardest hit southern part of it, um, to replenish those groundwaters by flooding fields and orchards in the um, kind of in the off season. Mm. So farmers are allowing their orchards and their fields. They're actually not allowing. They're even diverting stormwater that comes down when it rains um, onto their fields in the hopes that you know it'll trickle down and replenish the groundwater underneath. And the experiment is around whether you know the plants could be damaged by sitting in that water, and to the issue of the fact that stormwater often has a lot of contaminants in it. Mm -hmm. So University of California at Davis and the University of California Cooperative Extension System are studying this very carefully, and they're actually funding the whole effort and looking at those two issues. Mm -hmm. And I know you've also covered uh, what some companies in California have been looking at. Um, I know especially I think the big food companies have been very attuned to this. I know the brewers in particular have also faced some heat for um, whether they're doing enough to to sort of reuse water and minimize that in their operations. Um, Are there other things uh, you're looking at there? Are companies getting involved in the groundwater issue at this point? Not in real explicit ways other mm-hmm. than supporting the research in a kind of like, yeah, go ahead, 
Right. Um, and being interested. Mm-hmm. Well, luckily this year we've had some rain for everyone in the Central Valley to experiment with. So we'll stay tuned to all of this. And you can read all of our World Water Day coverage on greenbiz.com. Senior writer Barbara Grady, thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. Take care, everyone. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can find links to the organization's stories and events that we've mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks, as always, to 350's producer, Saria Melkonian. You can subscribe to Green Biz 350 through a variety of channels, including iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You'll also find it every Friday morning on greenbiz.com, and you can learn about it through our daily email newsletter, Green Buzz. You can all now also now get Green Biz News Daily on your iPhone via the Apple News app. Send us your feedback, your ideas, and your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Just go to 350 at greenbiz.com. For all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.